Hey, you're listening to the weekly sermon podcast, The Tab Talks, from the Lethbridge Christian Tabernacle. If you have any questions or if you'd like some more information on today's topic or about who we are, you're welcome to visit our website at thetab.ca. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you. So how is everybody doing? How's everybody doing today? Yeah? Kind of, yeah? Yeah? Good? Who had a fantastic week? Yeah, I knew there was a few people who must have had some fantastic weeks in here. Yeah? You know, who enjoyed Friday? It was crazy. Eh? It was like, I mean, the temperature. Remember, it was like plus 16 degrees, very little wind for once. It was just a beautiful day. And then you wake up what can you do? Minus 16 or whatever it was with the wind chill. It's like, ah, southern Alberta. What can you do? That's so true. Wait, exactly. Wait a couple minutes. All right. If you're visiting, if you're new, if this is your first time here, welcome. I, I do hope that you feel welcome this morning. Uh, this is a, we say it all the time, it's a family gathering. We're just a family hanging out together. We do this on a weekly basis, but, but more than just a couple hours on a Sunday, we'd like to get together other times as well. And so I'd encourage you, you know, make space to connect, grow together. An hour on a Sunday is, is fantastic, but there's a greater depth that comes when we actually begin to live in community, live in connection, and live connected to those around us which is exactly what we've been talking about for this last few weeks. We've been talking about the story of what it looks like to truly live in community, living out the, the story of what Jesus challenged us. Jesus and Paul both refer to this as really the central story of our lives. You could even describe this as the heart of the new covenant. The new covenant that Jesus brought into to the story of our lives here was this incredible story of love that love defines the covenant. And Jesus said that you boil all the laws and the prophets down into these two central statements, love the Lord your God with everything you got. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Paul went a step further. And didn't put anything on the screen. I don't know. There's a scripture that's there too somewhere, Sammy. Because <laughs> Paul simplified it and said, actually, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, that, that actually you could boil all of it down, the central story into one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Because there's something incredibly power, powerful and honoring to God when we actually live out the story of loving our neighbors. So, I give this crazy homework stuff every week, and I'm curious, did anyone happen to do last week's homework? Does anybody remember? There's, there's ten or two things. One was watch a video, right? We're watching the seventh video in that series called 12 Neighbors. Anybody watch it? Okay, yeah, that's an interesting story again. Again, it's talking about starting places. So these are just, again, this video series we're using from Right Now Media is just, it's a, it's a way to get us thinking, to get us 
open to saying, Holy Spirit, what might you want to release in our community to meet the needs here? And there's, some, again, a bunch of unique ways that the different believers all around the world have found to, to meet tangible needs and demonstrate love for their neighbors. The second part of your homework was probably more challenging, though. I challenge you to actually connect with your actual neighbors, the actual people who are connected next to you, and I challenge you to do it. And I'm curious, did anyone take me up on the challenge and actually reach out and connect with their neighbors? One, two, and yeah, yeah. I know Wendy did last week too, yeah. Excellent. The rest of you, I still love you. <laughs> but I'm challenging you in this season. The story of this is about changing who we are. That there's something about what Jesus did and how he described and things we find in Scripture that, that we can have the choice. We can be hearers of the word or we can be doers. And the, the story, that there's this incredible blessing as we, as we try to live out this, this picture of what Jesus demonstrated. And I know it stretches us. It pushes us sometimes beyond our, our comfortable story of life pushes us beyond the, the, the routines maybe that we normally have. But I promise you on the other side of it, there can be incredible blessing. Sometimes it's actually not about your blessing though. I would challenge you that even more so, it, it might actually be more importantly about, about those people around you. That God might absolutely, let me rephrase that, not might, he absolutely wants to bless through you. So I challenge you, reach out, if you didn't do it last week, try this week. Just try to make space to actually connect with your neighbor. I know it seems silly, but I promise you there's something powerful in this. Okay? We all right? I'm not, not beating everybody up too much. All right? We're good? I'll get into the sermon, then I'll beat you up. <clears throat> if you got a Bible, I uh, invite you. We're going to read a passage that we actually started the series with. And uh, if you want to flip to Luke chapter 10 pretty well-known story. I'm going to read it again so we can get a good sense of this passage, get a good sense of, of what this story is about in context, especially to this, this principle that Jesus is driving home. This is what the word of the Lord says. It says, um, hmm, cutting partway through here. <laughs> A guy corners Jesus and asks him a question, and he says, you know, what is it? How do I get into heaven? And then I'm pre-giving you the pre-story here. How do I get into heaven? And Jesus responds, well, what do you think? And he comes back with, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the happened before this moment. And this is the question, though, that happened after that. Jesus said, great job. You got it right. And the man, though, trying to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. Yes, a priest shows up. Perfect timing. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side and passed him by. Then a Levite or a temple assistant walked over and he looked at 
him lying there, but he also decided he would pass by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay it the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Which one do you think it was, Jesus asked. The man replied, well, obviously the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Let's bow our heads and take a moment to pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive. That as we spend time taking it in, hearing it, and giving it room in our lives, Lord, it literally can transform us. And so we ask you this morning, over these next few moments, Lord, open our ears to hear what your spirit might want to say to us. Over these next few moments, Lord, would you transform our hearts and our minds to shape us so that we might look more like you but more than just looking like you, that, that our lives might reflect you, that we might act more like you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Grateful for what you've done. Grateful that you're still at work today and that you're inviting us to follow you. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. There's a statement that I've been trying to drive home through this that is critical, in, I think, in, in the, the story of what God wants to do in, in changing how we think. Because it's important to change how you think because it actually affects how you act. Because I said cultures define kingdoms. Cultures define kingdoms. Thoughts and actions are what creates culture, though. The question is, what do you think the culture of heaven is supposed to look like here on earth? Romans 12, again, we're reminded of this powerful truth that says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I, uh, I grew up in church, right, whole life. Dad was a pastor, sat through tons and tons of sermons, hundreds of sermons, could quote lots of scriptures, could never find where they were, but just knew them because I'd sat through so many sermons and, and, and they were all there. But I'd never really spent time reading my Bible. I, I had a Bible, used it, you know, like, like many people had, where you'd, you know, you'd flip it open and you'd read through a section or you'd love those good old Psalms and you'd do like the Psalms a day thing or Proverbs or whatever, right? There's some easily, quickly applicable stuff. 
But it wasn't until my, my mid-20s when I actually had this mentor that was doing some stuff with me and leading me into this, I don't know, this greater story of, of what it means to be a disciple. And I, and I finally started reading Scripture a bit. And, and as I was reading through, I found that it was, uh, man, it was incredibly powerful what God did in that season for me. I fell in love with the Old Testament. I fell in love with reading through these old stories, which, again, like many I had tried, you know, you start in the beginning and you work your way through, and then by, like, by Leviticus, maybe, or Numbers, for sure, you're done. Like, you're like, what is going on? I have no idea. This is just lists of random things and people. That... But, but it seemed like in that season, as I, I really approached it from the sense of, Lord, what do you want me to see in this? And I, and I began reading it through and, and began just loving the big picture story of what, what God has done how he's taken has me, people like me and people like you, normal people, and done incredible things to, to transform and shape the world. Normal people, just as screwed up as you and I. That's what I loved as I was reading through this. Even, even the prophets and some of them and their weird things that they did and their weird thoughts are like, I'm the only prophet. And God's like, no, there's lots more. Don't worry. All of these incredible things you read is that you get this big picture story. But I remember when I then jumped into the New Testament and started reading through the Gospels. And, and I, I loved the Gospels because there's just, I mean, it's good stuff. It's, this is Jesus, right? This is, this is the center of it all. This is, and I'm reading through these four Gospels. And I remember getting to the end and I'm like so excited. And, and I realized as I got to the end, those four Gospels, I, I was like, man, this was incredible. Like, and there was this sense of excitement and hurry and passion. I'm like, I'm going to go do exactly what Jesus did. And I'm going to go out there. I'm going to heal people. I'm going to do all this stuff. And I'm, I'm going to run through the world and change it overnight. And I remember sitting with my mentor one time, and he said, you do realize that, you know, that the Gospels are like four, four separate biographies, right? That, that this is the, these are snapshots of some amazing things that happened with Jesus. If you take all of these things that happened that we read in Scripture, you could boil each of those moments down into like a month and a half, right? Like all of that whole story, the pieces that we get, the overlapping stuff, if you put them back to back to back to back, it's, it's, it's a very short story. And it's easy to read through the Gospels and think, yeah, Jesus was busy. He was getting stuff done. He was changing the world. And we forget that this whole story transposes over like three, three and a half years. That there was the story of Jesus you know, gathering some disciples, saying, follow me, and they head out on this crazy journey that wasn't just an overnight trip. It was this incredible journey over years of them learning and growing and seeing the incredible, miraculous things that Jesus did. This is a long process. And then you get to the story is, as, as Jesus is the central thing that you, you could probably pull out of Scripture that the invitation to you and I was, come and follow me. So he said to all the disciples, follow me. And it's almost like that same story has been, has been inv invitation has been given to us, come follow me. And so following him is what we as Christians would say we're trying to do, trying to figure out how to do in this world. How to, how to follow him into the places where he is and follow as he's moving. Last week, we talked about barriers to loving our neighbors. We said that sometimes fear can be one of the big barriers that hinders us from loving our neighbors. 
fears in all shapes and sizes, all the various things that can cause anxiety or fear in us that can be a massive wall to entering into connection and relationship and loving our neighbors. This week, we're going to dive into another barrier, another barrier that I think is probably one of the most relevant to many of us. To understand this barrier, I think you've got to look at Scripture. I'm not going to read all the stories. I'd love to read all of these stories. You can read through the Gospels and understand that there's something significant about how Jesus did his life. If you were to read in Mark chapter 5, there's this moment where Jesus, he's, uh, he gets up in the morning and a large crowd comes to him. And there's this, this wealthy guy named Jairus. Okay, if you want to, again, I'm not going to read it all. You can go home and read the story. Mark 5, verses 21 to 36. Uh, this, this Jairus guy comes. He's a, he's a well-known person in the area. It says he's a ruler in the synagogue. So he's an important dude. But he shows up as Jesus is doing this teaching and he comes to him terrified and panicked. He is probably bawling, messy, snot everywhere. And he says, Jesus, my daughter is about to die. She's going to die, and I am here because I've heard that you can heal her. I've heard that, that you have the ability to heal my daughter, so I need you to come, please. She's going to die. She, she's going to die, and I need you to come. And it's, it's, I need this to happen now because we don't have much time. And Jesus is like, all right, let's go. And so they head out. And they start walking towards where his daughter is. And this crowd that was with him continues to follow him. And the crowd is pressing in all around him. And suddenly a woman pushes through the crowd and reaches out and touches the edge of his garment. And so now, again, he, he stops. And he's like, somebody touched me. And his disciples are like, lots of people touched you. And, and in this moment, though, this woman had been dealing with this issue with blood for 12 years and had been battling this intense health condition. And she knows that just getting close to Jesus, she believes that, that she can be healed. And she pushes through this crowd and simply in touching his garment, she's healed. But Jesus stops Remember, he's supposed to be going to deal with this girl that's about to die any moment. And he stops, and he's talking to the crowd. Who touched me? And this woman's not saying anything initially. And then, and then she speaks, it was me. And then he takes this moment, he's taking this time to teach, and he's like, you need to understand that this, something powerful is happening. You've been healed by your faith, basically. And, and in the midst of this whole time, it says he's talking to the crowd. And one of Jairus' servants comes racing up and says, Jairus, I'm so sorry, your daughter died. And you can just imagine the disciples like, dude, why did you not just keep going? Like, why did you stop? And Jesus says, it's okay. It's okay. She'll be all right. And Jairus, I'm sure, is just losing it. I'm sure he's just livid. He's angry. Finally gets there to this girl, though, and and it's, you know, this incredible moment. And again, read through the story. It's such a powerful thing. He just says, little girl, it's time to wake up. And she gets up, and she's totally fine. And there's a whole bunch woven into this story because the woman had an issue of blood. She had that for 12 years, and it's a 12-year-old girl as well that happens to be healed or raised from the dead. So there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about with that, but I don't have time this morning. I 
this incredible story, though, that Jesus seemed to be moving at a different pace. You could see that again. The same thing happens when Jesus is, again, somewhere doing some ministry stuff, gets letter, gets word that his good buddy Lazarus. Now, this, you got to understand, this is a good friend. I mean, this is Mary and Martha, right? Mary and Martha, we know them. This is their brother. This is a family that is super close to his heart. He hears that Lazarus is really sick. Same kind of situation. And like, this is a big deal. Like, he's, he's really, really sick. Jesus stops. He says, ah, you know what? Two days. Let's hang out for two more days. We'll be fine. The disciples, I'm sure, are like, Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> like, we could probably just go now, right? Like, and Jesus is like, no, I, I'm doing something here. This is, and, and two days later, you know, he, he's, here's, you know, Lazarus died. And his and disciples, I'm sure, are like, ugh. Just another opportunity. This is weird. Jesus heads out, though, and he gets there. And, you know, it's one of those, those interesting scenes. And it's, it's a confusing one, I think, when you look at Scripture because he gets there, this close family that he's connected to, they're, you know, they're, they're just losing it, right? They're wailing. They're crying. Lazarus has been dead now for days. And, and, uh, and Jesus... Uh, the shortest verse in the Bible is found here. This is, if you want to read it, it's John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. So there was something powerful in the moment. We don't know what it was that was driving it, but there's something about this story of love that's connected to this. And of course, we know he, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth and he gets out. Jesus, I don't know if he just maybe never had a watch, didn't understand time or something, but... You'd see it again in Matthew 14. He's, he's at a, a large space, gets up early in the morning, side of a hill. It's out in the middle of like kind of nowhere. He's outside of all the city, outside of all the villages, up on the side of a hill. He's standing out there and the crowds just keep coming. They just keep coming until it says there's like 5,000 men. So that's potentially like, you know, 10, 15,000 if you throw in the women and children. There's, this is a massive gathering of, of thousands of people that have shown up there. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus starts teaching in the morning. He's teaching good stuff, fantastic stuff. Teaching, preaching his brains out. And I'm sure the disciples are like, dude, this is awesome, but there's a lot of people and there's no food out here. I'm sure they've been like, okay, Jesus, you want to wrap it up a little bit here. Wrap it up. Come on. And, and he just keeps teaching and teaching. And it says he gets kind of towards the end of the day. And, and the disciples are like, now we are in trouble. We are in trouble because it's too far for them to go to try to get food anytime soon. We got nothing here. And I'm sure they're like, man, what is going on? Why did Jesus not just like, you know, we could have sped things up, could have got things going to get these people out of here so they could go get some food. And he just stops and says, you know, gets a guy's lunch, a little boy's lunch, and turns it into, multiplies it, and feeds this entire incredible group. The stories in the gospel are just like this over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It seems like something about Jesus is that, that he had this sense of unhurriedness in his life. You could argue many different things about why he did what he did, whether it was just because he knew the future or whatever it is. You could argue all of that. But at the end of the day, when you read through these biographies, these four Gospels, you can see this picture that Jesus seemed to not have this sense of hurry that so often defines our lives. We 
talk about barriers for our story in loving our neighbors, I really think hurry might be one of the biggest barriers that we have. One of my favorite psychological studies that's, that was ever done uh, was set in, in early 1973. 1973 at the Princeton University, at the seminary that was on campus in, in Princeton. So they had a seminary at this Ivy League school. Uh, so this is like, you know, the, the, some of the best of the best, but this is a seminary again, right? These are people who are preparing to enter into ministry. They wanted to do an experiment. There was two behavioral scientists uh, named uh, John Darley and, and Daniel Batson. Uh, they were interested in studying uh, some of the psychological processes of behavior, and they specifically were focusing on why do people do good things for others? That was the premise of why they built this experiment. Here's how the experiment went. Uh, they, they did a questionnaire with all the seminarians beforehand, and they asked them a few questions. They, they took them all through this thing, and these were people heading down the road to be priests, pastors, you know, work in ministry, and they asked them, you know, is it, you know, what drives you? Why do you want to be in ministry? And, and they kind of were wondering, you know, who's going to come out in which one of the two camps more because they feel like this, this sense of a deep calling that's driving them, or if it was more because they have this, you know, this, this sense that they want to participate in doing good. So more of an external thing that's driving them, they want to impact out there, or if it feels like there's this sense of, of the presence of God or some, some calling internally that's driving them to enter into ministry. And so they put them through all this questionnaire. That was the first part of the study. The heart of the study, though, was that they then were told, they told all of the, uh, the participants that they needed to prepare a brief talk, a small sermon on the passage that we just read about the Good Samaritan. So they asked each of these seminary students to prepare a little sermon on the Good Samaritan. They then gathered the participants in one, like one by one, took them into this room, had them kind of talk about it for a moment, and then they divided them into random groups as they were sent out. Uh, group A, there was three of them. Uh, group A was you, they said, okay, what you're going to do, you're sitting with us now, your talk sounds great. Uh, group A you need to go over and give your talk at a, at a room at another spot on campus. You have lots of time to get there. There's no rush. Take your time, but just, you know, kind of start making your way over to this other space where you have to give your good sermon, good Samaritan talk, okay? So that was group A. Group B was, okay, your sermon sounds good. Okay, now head over to that classroom. You know what? You're, you're just going to be on time if you leave right now. Okay, so if you leave just right now, you don't have to go straight there, get there as quickly as you can, but you got, you got time. There's plenty of time for you to get to there, but you need to leave now. So there's a little bit more of a pressure. So the first one was like, man, you got tons of time. Second one was, okay, got a little bit of time, so hustle and get your butt over there and you can get there in time to deliver it. The third group was, okay, your sermon sounds great. Oh my goodness, you were supposed to be there like five minutes ago and you need to get over to the classroom right now to go deliver this talk on the Good Samaritan. Along the way, they had staged that they'd have to go through this narrow alley. It was four feet across. 
That was the way it was set up. It was the closest way. They told them exactly the way that was fastest for them to get there. And they set it up so every one of these students had to go through this alley. In this four-foot-across alley, they put a person there who had been beaten up. The story of the Good Samaritan, basically. They were lying there, wounded, fake blood and all, needing help, needing assistance, and asking for help. They actually even put it to that space where they were actually conscious enough to ask. It was an interesting study. <clears throat> when they got to the results of this study, they were wondering, you know, what would the percentages look like? How would people stop? Here's what they found. The factor that, that had almost no bearing was whether you felt like it was an internal calling why you went into ministry or because you want to do good. That didn't, almost didn't affect the stats at all. The only real factor that made a difference was how much time people felt they had. The time-constraint variable mattered a ton. Because this, this is the crazy part. These are seminary students, and they, they, this test has been, again, there's some who would question it, but overall the test has been examined and said that it's, it's a very fair test. Even those ones who were, you know, had you had tons of time, you're super early, the first group, only 63% stopped. This was seminary students. Now, the argument pushed back was that this is an Ivy League school. Some of these people might have been a little richer. I don't know. They might not have won. Either way, these were people who went into ministry. They're going into ministry. Only 63% stopped. The people who said, you know, you're on time. You're on, this is the second group now. You're on time, but you better hurry because you, you don't want to miss this. Only 45% of them actually stopped to help a person in need. Now, how much... What percent do you think stopped for the late? So the ones who said, you're, you're already late. You're supposed to be there already. You need to get there now. How many of those? And they were going to give a sermon on the Good Samaritan. What percentage do you think actually stopped? Any other numbers? Only 10%. Only 10% of these seminary students going to give a talk about the Good Samaritan actually demonstrated it in the moment when they could. It says a lot about us, I think. And, and I, you know, as much as I would say, those guys are idiots, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I could see myself doing the same thing if I was in a major rush. Again, these are, there's so many factors in this, right? These guys are going to school. They're, this is a degree. They're paying a lot of money for this. There's, there's so much tied into this. There's so many things, the pressures that are on them. And so, of course, you know, I, I, in some ways, it kind of makes sense. But isn't that really the story for all of us? Every day, we've got pressures, time constraints, responsibilities, things that weigh on us that that often can easily become a barrier for us. I, uh, last year, a book was released, this one. I would highly recommend it. If you have time, if you've got a few dollars, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. By John Mark Comer. I would highly recommend it. It's a fantastic book. It works through really the heart of this barrier for us. Because for many of us, this barrier is huge. We're busy. Our 
culture, our world around us, tells us how we need to prioritize our lives in such a way that it drives us, presses us forward into all of the things that, that we have to do. Instead of allowing the Spirit to actually guide us and lead us to the things that, that we're supposed to do. In the book, he lays out four challenges for us, though. And, and again, I cannot do it justice in this morning. We could probably do this into a sermon series by itself. But he lays out four fantastic foundational things. Four, four ways of, of imagining how you could adjust your life in such a way that it could reflect maybe a little bit more of Jesus' life. And the four ways he challenges us with, again, the first one is silence and solitude. That, that the practice of silence and solitude in our lives is, is, is a critical one, one that seemed to be central to Jesus' story. It says that often, regularly, he would head out by himself in the mornings and he would take time away from the disciples, away from the busyness, away from the hustle, the bustle, and be away. I was thinking about this one this week, and I won't, I won't go through all of it. It's actually a fantastic chapter in the book. And some of the, the challenges and the practical ways he lays out in our lives to, to put, put ourselves in a space of silence and solitude. Talks even a little bit about the science. It's incredible what it does to our brains. Our brains are so overstimulated all day long that without that space of getting away, our brains don't actually function the way they're supposed to. We, we basically keep them running in overdrive all the time because there's always these things going around. There's stimulation, there's, there's phones and TVs, and, and then the lists of all the things we have to do. But there's something about regular rhythms of getting away for silence and solitude. I'm officially putting it out there. My hot tub is open. Come hang out. Because for me, that's exactly what it is. It's the space where I get my silence and solitude. The problem in our lives for some of us that can't hear God's voice very often is because, because we just keep going. We don't stop. We don't give space in our lives to listen, to hear. Silence and solitude resets our calib- recalibrates us so that we can be in line and in tune with the kingdom of heaven, which certainly runs at a different pace than the kingdom of this world, the culture around us. And if we want to transform our minds, the renewing of our minds comes in this space of making room for silence and solitude. I won't go more into that. The other one that he strives as the second point is, is Sabbath. Which you could say, is it the same thing? No, it's not. It's definitely different. You know, Sabbath is, is more than just getting away. It's actually setting aside squared out time of rest. And so in our lives and rhythm, it's literally, we know from Sabbath, it's, it's out of that Genesis story that even, even after God created, he rested. That, that it's built right into our lives. For some of us, we, we, you know, we don't do that anymore, right? You know, things used to shut down on Sundays, and I'm not telling you not to go anywhere on Sundays, and I'm not telling you you can't do any work. I'm not going to push it to the extremes, but, but having that sense of a reset day even in our week can be critical for our story of health, putting our lives back in balance so we can understand that space of, of getting out of the hurry and hustle and bustle of life and stepping into another stream that can actually affect us way more powerfully than most of us realize. So I want to challenge you, Sabbath. Sabbath. 
get the book, get in a great chapter. The third one he drives home is a, as a good practical thing. We could call it a spiritual discipline. Um, we could call all of these things those, but really it's, it's practices that when we put them into our lives begin to transform us so that we are more in tune and more able to follow where Jesus leads us. The third one is simplicity. In, in, earlier in Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70. And he sends them out, not necessarily with a set time. He just says, you're going to go. He sends them out two by two. And then he gives them their, you know, the travel list. You know, we go to camp, right? You make sure you pack your sleeping bag. pack all those. His travel list was... Don't really take anything. Just go. Go with what you got. Don't load yourself down with stuff. And and again, I don't know about you, but for me, when I go traveling, my suitcase gets extra full. I'm one of those weird packers that I got got to pack for every condition that I might experience. And so my wife makes fun of me because my suitcase is always heavier than hers, which I don't know, makes no sense. Jesus, though, says, travel light. Don't get caught up with things. Live in a simple way so that you won't be distracted by things. This chapter in the book, I would encourage you, is probably one of the most relevant, I think, in, in, in our culture today that goes directly against so many things that, that, that media is pushing at us. Some practical things he lists in the book. It says, you know what? You could probably buy fewer things and maybe spend more time giving things away. A friend of mine right now for Lent, that's her challenge. Every, every day she's finding something in her house to give away for the entire season of Lent. Yeah. First few days were really easy. She's like, oh, I don't really want this at all. This is easy. And then the few days in now, she's like, huh, what am I going to give away? Because she's trying to clear out stuff and change some rhythms in her life. The other thing he says is, you know, try with where possible to try to live inside of a budget. Not that it's about constraint or about control, but it's about stewardship. How do we wisely steward what we have? So often, again, as he talks about in there, is there's, there's this impulsive nature that seems to drive our society, right? There's always a thing popping up all the time on your phone or the, the deal as you're walking down the aisle in Costco. You're like, oh, look at that. Oh, that's really nice. I could use one. No, oh. and, and, and you might not need it, but you, you catch yourself in the moment. And that leads you to the thing. He says, this is one of the key things he drives home in this was, before you buy anything, ask yourself, you know, what's the true cost of this? And, and not just the, the hidden costs of what you might have to buy, but what does it mean for, for me to own more things? What, what is the cost of what it might do? Does it hold, do I, will I hold on to this? And, and that's the, the, the summing up of the simplicity part is, is maybe a shift in how we view everything we have. Understanding we don't get to take it with us when we go. Living in a simple way can transform us. The last one, which almost seems obvious. The fourth thing that he drives home, though, is, so if it was silence, solitude is one, Sabbath, simplicity, was the next two and three, slowing, which sounds like obvious if you're trying to stop hurrying. Slowing is obviously what you'd have to do. The question is, how do you do that in a world that is so fast-paced? 
How do you begin to reprogram our minds? Because most of us don't even realize how deeply ingrained hurry is into who we are. We don't realize how much it drives us every day and everywhere we go, in our conversations, in the places that we go to. This certainly qualifies in that category of counter-cultural. Suggestions he leaves in the chapter, there's a pile of fantastic ones. One of them, though, is it's an interesting one. For those of you who don't do this, if you want to learn how to start practicing you know, a less hurried life, maybe drive the speed limit. I know. <laughs> it's a silly thing, but it's, it's a subtle thing. And he says, even in that, choose to drive in the slower lane, which in Lethbridge is not a big deal most of the time, right? But... but but those are the kind of practical things to begin to reprogram our minds, being conscious of, I'm just going to slow down. I'm going to drive the speed limit. Please drive at least the speed limit, though, please. On Whoop Up especially. If you're going to drive 40, like, please don't. Don't slow down that much. Other examples of saying how we can begin to reprogram ourselves in a fast food world. Maybe it's for some of us, it's taking more time to cook at home. And even out of that, maybe taking more time to even cook from recipes and different things and, and just slow down and enjoy that process. Not just the food preparation, but maybe it's something that you do as a family that actually is a moment where you slow down together and try to enjoy the process. For some of us, the, the practices and, and things like journaling can be an incredibly powerful thing to stop, slow us down, cause us to reflect, it begins to reprogram our brain to say, okay, I need to slow down. What did I see? What did I experience? How do I make sure I'm aware of that? For some of us, it's actually even just walking slower, not being in a rush everywhere you go all the time. An interesting one, and I think this might be more challenging for ladies. I won't say that. Maybe, maybe. But maybe try, you know, single task sometimes instead of multitasking. That even the practice of single tasking, intentionally saying I'm focusing on what I'm doing in the moment, can be an incredibly powerful way of reprogramming our minds and, and changing how we approach life. And we approach, again, sorry, I wasn't a shot at ladies. Just, you're just so, better, so much better at multitasking. Men are more wired this way. So. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff in this book about phones and cell phones and social media and the what that does to our brains in the space of hurrying. But one of the challenges he puts in here is turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. Maybe delete some of the apps that distract you. Maybe pull out some of the things that, that cause you to kind of keep going to your phone all the time. For some of us, if it's, if it's you're constantly looking for social media stuff, actually maybe delete the social media apps. And he challenges in there, schedule times in your life for accessing those things. Scheduling and setting limits on maybe when you check your email, when you view social media, when you even how much TV you watch. Having it so that you, you, know, you, you have this space where you're not always in this rush, driven by what happens all the time. Now, pushback on this is that some people, when you say the slowing down, I'll take one more shot, maybe for some millennials, it's like, sweet, I got this one nailed, I'm lazy. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm kidding. I think that's the tension, right? You have this tension when you think about laziness 
in the sense of, you know what, I was talking with someone this week, a young adult, and they were talking about how, you know, it's just crazy, I just haven't found the right job yet. And I'm like, how many resumes have you handed out? I'm waiting for the right job to come along. I'm like, well, there might be some things in this. So there's, a, there's that balance between slowing down and laziness, but there is something about us challenging us to make sure that we make space in our lives. Slow down. Because at the heart of what we want to get to is the sense that if we're following Jesus, right? That the Gospels are, are a picture for us to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus, to live like Jesus, to live in the way that God intended us to live. You know, I, I love the, the, even the idea that Jesus came down into earth not just for the dying part, that's central to the story, but in this process we have the story of what he was trying to show us, what it looks like to actually live in the kingdom here on earth. That living in the kingdom will certainly be countercultural to the world around us. In 1 Thessalonians, wrapping it up, God calls us to live holy lives, it says this. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. The whole section before this, he's writing, Paul's writing to these guys, and he's writing this beautiful, incredible, encouraging word. You guys get this. You guys get the loving thing. But just a reminder, he says, make sure you're, you know, don't get stuck up in so sinful things, right? Don't, don't cheat your neighbors. Don't, you know, live sexually impure. And then he gets to this section where he's just saying, you know, I guess you know this, God's called us to live in a different way. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God. Ouch! Who gives us his, his Holy Spirit to you. But we don't write to you about the importance of, sorry, we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. He said, you guys get this. God has himself. He's written this story on your heart. He's taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers through Macedonia. You're good at this. You're good at loving, loving the brothers and sisters. Even so, he says, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you that there's still always room to grow in this, that you can learn to love even more. And then he makes this really powerful, simple statement. Make it your goal to live a quiet life. It's probably a good goal. Minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. And here's why. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live. You will not need to depend on others. What an incredible little promise tied to the end there. That as we choose to live in this totally different way, this totally outside-the-box way that's completely opposite of, of the culture around us in many ways, that in doing so, it's not just for us. Certainly, we get blessing. We don't have to depend on others. But the world will actually begin to see why living like this is important. There's a lot at stake here. 
Hurrying is busyness is certainly a barrier for us loving our neighbors at times. Certainly hinders us from living in the way of the kingdom at times. Kingdom living means that that we live like our king, right? Kingdom, we would live like our king. It could even be said that living like our king is the only way to access the wealth of the kingdom. That living like our king releases the bounty of heaven, the, the treasures of heaven, which are things like joy and peace and love and hope. That living in line with the kingdom, living in the way that Jesus invites us to, unlocks these things for us. Now this, I call a boomerang sermon. It's one of those ones that I throw out to you guys, and then it smacks me back in the face. Because like many others in this room, I struggle with hurry as well and busyness. But I really believe that there's something powerful in this. There is a treasure as we begin to slow down, as we begin to stay in tune with Jesus. We begin to stay with him instead of trying to run ahead all the time. That unlocks something not just for us, but for our neighbors. Because our neighbors are waiting to see a different way. Out of those four practices, which one do you think is the, the, the biggest challenge for you? creating silence and solitude in your life, creating a, a moment, or time to get away, whether that's a daily routine, a habit. Is it the Sabbath practice? You just, your week is so full, you just could not imagine setting up a day where, where you wouldn't, wouldn't be doing the same thing that you're always doing. You'd be setting aside a different rhythm in your life. Maybe it's the simplicity. You've got a complicated life. You've got a full life. You've got lots of stuff. Maybe that's a challenging one to imagine. What am I going to get rid of? I love all my stuff. Maybe it's the slowing down. Putting practical things into your life to begin to teach you to slow. In closing, for the next couple of minutes, I just want you to stop. And I want you just to listen. Listen to what the Lord might say. One of my favorite songs, I was listening to this incredible, powerful, just, just like God boomeranging me back, hitting me with this incredible, powerful truth. But you can just, in your own time, there's going to be a music song that plays for a few moments. Just give you some time to just sit and reflect and say, Lord, Lord what, what can you do in my life? How, how can you help me be freed from the spaces of hurry, the hurry that might rob me from, from loving my neighbor? the things that might make me fall into the trap of running past a hurting person on the road because I'm so busy to trying to get to where I need to get to. Help me not to be the 10% or the other people or, or any of those because I just want to follow you, Jesus. So take a few moments as the song plays and reflects.